We hear a lot about the importance of well-being. However, during challenging times, how effective are we at integrating it into our lives? In this episode, I speak to Dr. Darian Parker, fitness and wellness expert and the host of the podcast, Dr. D's Social Network, about the importance of well-being, his thoughts about the future, and the power of personal initiative in achieving goals. Like real simple, like that's your job today. Put on a pair of running shoes and then take them off. And the next day is put on a pair of running shoes, stand up and walk to your door. That's it. Then the next day, put on a pair of running shoes, go to your door, go outside, walk around your yard. Little shaping behaviors like that become large behaviors over time. Dr. D reflects on his experience with fitness and well-being and shares actionable steps that you can take to make a change in your life. He also discusses things that give him hope and his thoughts about the potential for cheating death in the future. So, Dr. Darian Parker, explore how to translate intention into action and get on a healthier path? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Dr. Darian Parker, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you? Uh, well, I've been in the fitness business for about almost 20 years coming up. doesn't seem that long for me, but uh, it's uh, been a wonderful journey. You know, I started being very into athletics growing up. My parents were both very athletic and encouraged me and my brother to be in sports. And I ended up becoming a track and field athlete, a sprinter. And that's what I, I got a scholarship to run track and field in college as a sprinter. And during that time, I studied kinesiology and advanced exercise and coaching and administration and all those things. And it just kept pushing my desire to be in that environment uh, further and further. And eventually, I ended up going to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and did my doctorate in sports education leadership with an emphasis in behavior modification and exercise and sports settings. And then I basically got into my career at that point. Well, while I was doing my doctorate, I got into teaching at career colleges, helping to certify personal trainers through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And then that led to, over time, I left that environment and ended up getting into the luxury hotel, private master residential and corporate campus environment where I was personal training. I was running one of our high-end clubs. And then I became a fitness executive, the national director of fitness for a large company, the same company I was doing all that stuff with. And then eventually, after over a decade doing that, decided I wanted to start my own thing, kind of be self-employed and started a fitness spa and recreation consulting and management company, Epic Leisure Management, and then created a live virtual personal training service as well on the side of that, that I do pretty regularly. And then I have my own podcast, Dr. D's Social Network, that I enjoy doing as well. So staying busy during all these times. You know. Right. Now is a great time for people to be able to connect virtually and find outlets for physical activity during this time when a lot of people are locked at home. Yeah. I think it was something that I didn't anticipate, obviously, this happening with coronavirus and stuff. But Several years ago, I was like, I feel like the industry is heading in this direction. You know, just with some of the companies that were investing into it, I started seeing all the technology getting better and better through like Skype and 
FaceTime and WhatsApp and all these audiovisual technologies, which I kept thinking there's going to be something here, virtual reality, holographic training. And I wanted to be an early adopter in that and build that business. And so now it has become a lifeline for many trainers because they're being forced into it because of gyms being closed. So I was happy to be ahead of the game in that respect. You know. Yeah, certainly. It's good to be ahead of the curve. And I've seen a lot of other personal trainers starting to try to build virtual businesses. I think it's a very difficult climate right now to get people to invest in their own well-being in multiple ways in a time where focusing on our well-being and our health is very important. Yeah, I think it's a business it's very difficult to get into because it's not just like you turn on this audiovisual platform and you just go. I think that's a big mistake. And actually, I coach a lot of trainers throughout the years now, especially now of like, there's a lot of nuances to it. It's not just turning on your phone or your iPad or whatever, and then having uh, a video. And what we're seeing is all over social media and things that people are producing these videos of fitness workouts and stuff, but they're it's fairly low quality because they don't know what they're doing or there's like a five minute introduction of talking about why you're doing it and everything. And, you know, they don't understand the lighting behind it, notifications and things of that nature. They don't have air, uh, AirPods or wireless uh, headphones to connect uh, better in that sense for the audio quality and understanding the platform's connectivity, weaknesses or strengths. But I get it because you're just trying to make a living. You're trying to figure out how to get it done. But it's certainly something that requires a lot more research, mentorship, and certainly a lot of practice to get into it. And currently people, you know, money is an issue with people. You know, there's 22 million people who are unemployed now. So it's a good thing to get into, but it's also difficult being that economically we're in a tough situation. Certainly. Yeah. And I highly respect your background um, and your education in relation to, you know, not even just physical health and, and well-being, but you also have a pretty extensive and impressive background in relation to behavioral modification and changes in human behavior, which is another layer of expertise during this point in time as folks start to establish new behaviors and new patterns of behaviors, just simply because, again, they're starting to work from home or they're isolated at home or are starting to lack the human connection they used to have in the past. What do you feel like we're learning from this moment in time in relation to how people are building new patterns of behavior and how do people stay mindful of how that pattern of behavior impacts their wellness? It's a good question. I think to answer this, it's good to look at kind of current research and past research related to human behavior. All of this is a human behavior issue going on. It's a psychological or psychosocial dynamics related to it. And this kind of goes back to the whole question of kind of nature versus nurture in relation to the manifestation of your behavior. And when I was going to school, there was a tremendous amount of conjecture and conversation related to is it more nurture? Is it more nature? And uh, researchers like Dr. Lyle and Dr. Jin Hawk and many others are now finding out that the majority of our behavior and how we express of our, our behavior is almost 100% genetic and that our environment basically provides 
cushion or it literally kind of molds that genetic behavior in one way or another. They use the example of the ocean analogy in terms of behavioral traits and whether what's imprinting upon those genetic traits. So right now, people are at home and their behavior is being influenced primarily by their own genetic behavior, but also the environment in terms of the people that they are around. So I think we're learning that the people that we're around, are we comfortable with those people? We feel like they're positive uh, aspects of our life, or are we uncomfortable with the people that we're around on a regular basis at this point? And for a lot of people, because they've been working so much and they've been traveling so much for work and they haven't spent a lot of time with people in their lives. And so I think they're assessing what's the relationship I actually have with the people that I'm in many ways quarantined with or stuck with or spending all this time with that I didn't spend time with before. And there's some people who you've just been around all the time. Maybe your job hasn't changed much because you're a remote worker before this. But I think there's a large portion of our society that is now at home and their behavior is being highlighted based off of the people that they're around and how that's affecting them. So I think we're learning a lot about who we are as human beings genetically and then how that is being uh, either enhanced or negatively affected by the people around us in that. I can very much relate to what you're saying. And I, I obviously love my family very much. So I'm a mom of four. You know, I've got myself working from home, my husband working from home, my kids, all four of them at home. As we've all been home, I've kind of experienced a little bit of both of what you kind of talked about. So whether it be kind of feeling like we're a little bit closer right now because of this experience, but also feeling a little bit more impacted, I think, by not even just what's happening out in the world, the uncertainty associated with that, but also trying to be more mindful about how we're all impacting one another and seeing how that does spread through the family when somebody's feeling off or stressed or something in relation to the uncertainty that we're experiencing. Uh, it does kind of bleed into how all of us are starting to feel. And I think that the more that we stay home, the more we're experiencing that dynamic. I think that if you look at it, you're starting to see the manifestation of that. So all of a sudden you're starting to see people protest, you know, um, different governments and different states and saying, you know, we need to return to work. We need, And I, I do believe that there is a large portion of that is they want to get to work. But I also believe that there's a large portion of that people are not used to being at home with their families or other people, and they're starting to learn some things that they may really like and they may not like. And to be totally honest, this may sound insensitive in some level, but it's just the truth behind human behavior. There's going to be a lot of people who have been cloistered with somebody for a month and they realize they don't want to be around that person that often. They just don't. And because they've never been around that person that often. And their life has existed in a way where they've made it work by not being around those people too often, in a sense. They've gone to work, they go home, they get enough contact time they feel in their mind with that person to make it feel good or enjoyable in their life. There are a lot of people who aren't comfortable with spending copious amounts of time with other people in their lives that may be their spouse, significant other, children and things. It's just the, it's just the nature. There, what about your traveler, your business traveler who is constantly on the road, who now 
is, is doing the exact opposite, which is constantly at home, that's uncomfortable for that person more than likely. Or either it will say, I need to not be on the road as much, or it'll reinforce their desire to get back on the road. So I think we're seeing the manifestation of that, that some people are like, hey, I need to get out of this. I can't be at home all the time economically, but also socially, emotionally. But then there's other people who are saying, I'm enjoying this. I want to be home more often. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge both sides of the equation. It's not like I hear things people say, is to just make us all closer. We should all just be closer after this. I'm like, yes, there will be a large portion of people who will feel that. But there will also be the truth of the other side that some people will feel that they don't want that. Absolutely. And I think a couple important things that you brought up, uh, one being the fact that this is impacting people in many different ways, depending on their circumstances. For some people, this might be beneficial to them for whatever reason, whether it be the fact that maybe they enjoy working from home. Yes. Maybe they're more productive or maybe they enjoy the fact that they might get some additional solitude. For other people, it might be the complete opposite, that they may not be getting enough of their own solitude, enough time to themselves, uh, enough time to focus on their own well-being. I think that's something a lot of parents are experiencing right now, too, in relation to not only having to sometimes work from home, but also having to help educate their children and also trying to figure out maybe financial burdens they might be having and so forth. And I wonder your perspective on this. Obviously, in times of stress and high disruption, sometimes people can experience a lack of motivation or you know, might not do a great job of focusing on things like exercise and the importance of exercise in being able to help people feel better, if you have a better mood or help them with their health. What's a strategy that uh, someone could use to kind of get out of that place of feeling afraid, maybe stuck, and really take that initiative to do something important for their well-being and their health? That's a very good question. I think it's important to go backwards on that. Often when I answer things, I like to go backwards just to kind of get to the root of it. I think we have more information than ever that tells us the positive aspects of working out exercise, health, and wellness. But if you really look at it, how we view these things is shaped by much of the technology we have, the algorithms that we have that feed us the information. So if you're not into exercise, really, and you're looking things up on the internet, whatever that is, cars or computer technology, the internet is going to feed you news that is only based off of what you're looking up on a regular basis. So you wouldn't know the research and things that are going on. If you want to learn more about exercise, you want to get into it, change how you search the internet so that you're getting more feeds related to things for health and wellness or mindfulness or whatever it may be. The other thing is, as I said before, who is imprinting upon you, on your personality? Are you around a lot of negative people? That is going to really create a really strong disengagement with getting started, with doing any positive behavior. The same sense as if you're around a lot of positive people doing very positive behaviors, it's easier for you to be in that environment. Really, it's understanding what, what are you looking at for your information? How is it being fed to you? Who are the people in your lives that in your life that is maybe imprinting upon you either positively 
or, or negatively with it. And then I would think the other strategy really is, is to not feel like you have to like bite off a huge amount to st get started. Sometimes people go, I'm going to go all the way. I'm just going to start exercising a ton when I get started versus just going, I'm just going to go one block today. Or I'm going to just put on a pair of shoes, running shoes today. Like real simple, like that's your job today. Put on a pair of running shoes and then take them off. And the next day is put on a pair of running shoes, stand up and walk to your door. That's it. Then the next day, put on a pair of running shoes, go to your door, go outside, walk around your yard. Little shaping behaviors like that become large behaviors over time. Yeah, that's tremendously good advice. It brings me back to a point in time when I was significantly burnt out. So a few years ago, I yeah, was very burnt out to the point where it was significantly impacting my health. And one of the things that I did to recover from that circumstance is take an approach that you're describing. Okay, today I'm going to do 10 minutes of work or 10 minutes of exercise. And then when I do, I will reward myself. Either I'll allow myself to do something I enjoy. I will get a break. I will, you know, be able to go outside and get some fresh air, whatever it might be. I'm giving myself a little bit of incremental rewards for each little step that I completed. And I can definitely say that approach was uh, instrumental in my ability to recover from being burnt out. Yeah, I think that we take on too much sometimes. We think we have to conquer the world to become healthy. Yes. And really, it's like any training regimen. If your goal is to run a marathon, let's say, you just don't wake up and run a marathon. It requires a very regular habit. You need to slowly increase your mileage, see your response to the mileage, take care of yourself, sleep well. There's a lot of components to becoming well. But I think sometimes our society pushes us to just flip a switch and be well. Now I'm going to meditate. I'm going to be a great meditator. That's very difficult to meditate well. It is extremely difficult. You know, well, let's just use this app and get well. We need to tell people the truth. We need to be honest with people. We need to tell them like, yeah, it's hard. Don't sugarcoat it to people. Yeah, you want to get better? You want to get well? It's going to be difficult. I don't want to tell you something that's not, I don't want to say, oh, it's going to be great. Just do it. You're going to be great. I'm all for being positive, but I'm also for being very realistic. You're going to feel like crap when you start. You're not going to feel good because you're introducing a stimulus to your body that is foreign to it. If you haven't moved your body in years, the minute you start moving it in different directions and you start lowering your body and standing up and going from the ground to standing up, moving laterally, rotating your body, you're going to feel terrible. You just are because you, you need to get used to doing it. And I think it's what happens to people is they start something, they do too much. I kind of call it the middle-aged man syndrome, which is a guy who was a great athlete in, in high school hasn't done anything ever since then and goes, I'm going to play pickup basketball like a full game to get on the court and go out there. And then he gets hurt because he hasn't taken the small steps. He just, he's cocky about it. Like, oh, I used to be fit type of thing. Well, you're not anymore. You're not. You are far from that. And you're going to feel terrible when you start. It's okay. It's okay. Are you great at your job the first day you start your job, a new job? No, unless you've been doing that same job forever. And it's kind of a unilateral move. But if you're entry level into something, there's a huge foreign component to doing well at something. It's just going to take time. Right. And I, I love that you brought up the fact of 
being honest about the journey that people will take, because I think that is tremendously important. I think if someone goes into something like a fitness regimen with unrealistic expectations of what they can achieve, either because of their own ego or their background, like the situation you mentioned, or because people don't have a realistic expectation about what it's going to really take to be successful at getting well or becoming physically fit. It's a difficult journey to take. But if you understand that going in, I think it really helps your ability to become resilient to overcome those initial challenges or barriers you might encounter in, you know, along that journey. Totally. Expectations is a large part of life. You know, what your your happiness and how you feel good about the journey you're doing is greatly dependent upon the expectations you have for that journey. And for a lot of people, I think one of the hardest things is the comparison, you know, through our media and people see other people and they want to be like other people or they see somebody's figure and like, I want to look like that. And, and I always tell people, I'm like, you're just going to look like yourself. I don't know how you're going to look. You're going to look like some version of you. You'll never look like a version of someone else. You're just going to look like you. And if you've never taken the step to become the best, let's say, physical, physically fit version of yourself, no, if you don't know what that looks like, how am I going to know what that looks like? I don't know what that looks like. Or they say, here's a picture of me when I was 20. I want to look like that. I'm like, you realize a lot has changed in that time, physiologically inside your body, hormone levels, different experiences you had. You probably won't look like that again, but you'll look like a different version of your best self, whatever that's going to be. We won't know until we provide the stimulus on your body and see how it reacts. We're just not going to know. I think we need to be okay with not knowing how things are going to go which I'm not going to lie, I struggle with that. I've always struggled with the uncertainty and things. But as I've gotten older, I've understood that there's just nobody has all the answers. We're too quick to like, yep, this is what's going to happen. We're going to do this thing and this is what's going to happen. The truth is you have no clue what's going to happen. And you just have to take the journey and see where it leads. Absolutely. And I think we all sometimes fall into that trap because it feels like it feels comfortable to be in a place where we feel like we're in control of what's happening around us. Um, and sometimes we may even fool ourselves into thinking we have more control over our circumstances or our life than we do. And, you know, I think that given kind of where we're at in relation to a, a global pandemic, a lot of people are starting to recognize the fact that they are not in control of a lot of things that are happening around them. And it does take a shift for people to think differently about, look, it's okay that I don't have all the answers. It's okay that I don't know what's going to happen next, because the only thing that I can control is my reaction to the current circumstance and what I decide to do moving forward. Yeah. And you know, one of the really interesting things is I hear from people are kind of about the pandemic, like, this is it. This is going to be the thing that changes everybody into gentler, kinder people. We're going to be more thoughtful about each other and there's one side of me is like, yeah, there'll, there'll be an intelligent level of people who will do that. But there's also the concept of human immutability, which essentially there's ind many individuals who no matter what happens in their lives, they will go back to their previous behavior. And if it was a negative behavior, nothing will make them change that negative behavior. You know, that's generally slightly under 50% of people, actually. Wow. So... It's an, it's an incredibly daunting statistic, but throughout the course of 
humanity, it's pretty true. We know human behavior is very static. We actually know the predictability of human behavior very well. Humans are extremely predictable in their behaviors. And there are some humans that through the course of learning and you know, taking advantage of their genetic gifts and personality and the people that they're around, positive individuals, it will enhance what they're currently doing. And people say, well, they change. Well, no, they just become more of their genetic capability within that. And but then you have people who will just they will they will regress to the mean mathematically. A pandemic will not change their behavior. The pandemic is not the behavior change. It's the other people that is the behavior change. Who are you around to help you have some sense of going from a negative scale to a positive scale on your personality? But human behavior is very predictable, and it's very predictable that there will be many people who will alter the arc of their life. And there will also be a tremendous amount of people who will do nothing. They will do nothing to change them. It's just the nature of us. When's the last time you've seen a mass behavior change, like millions and millions and millions of people changed all at the same time, their behavior? It doesn't occur. It just doesn't. There's pockets, but it's not a mass deal with that. Right. That's an interesting concept to think about. We probably, as people, also fall into the bias trap, right? Where we have a lot of tremendous bias for our own experience, our own perspective. And a lot of us who may be people who have some level of optimism or hope for the future may fall into that trap that we assume everyone else sees this situation as we do and may react in the same ways that we we will, but that's not necessarily true. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I think that's what's really interesting about that, too, is the importance for everybody to think about their own agency in their current situation and their own ability to start shaping their future. And so even though behaviors are predictable and static, people have the ability and power to make decisions on behaviors that they, they can change as long as they stay diligent uh, enough to, to follow through with those um, intended changes. Yeah. I feel like for me, and I've been told this, like, I'm a naturally more positive person. So genetically, I have more of that slant. And so I'm going to have a more positive outlook about the after effects of a pandemic. And if I'm I'm around a lot of other positive people, it's going to amplify my natural positivity. But what if I'm generally pessimistic about everything? If I'm around a bunch of positive people, it will sway me higher on my pessimism versus optimism scale, but I'll still be holding at bay my negative nature, but I'll be better at it. If I'm very negative and I'm around a lot of negative people, it will amplify my negative personality. It will push me into be feeling like this is the worst thing ever. I don't care, blah, blah, blah. So it's really like the environment is shaping our personalities and different directions for that. And we, we do have decisions certainly to make, but often it's based off of the other people around us mold those decision making, not the pandemic. It's the people that mold our other our decisions, the mothers, the fathers, brothers, sisters, coworkers, friends. Who are those people? Identify who those people are in your life and how they are shaping your behavior on a regular basis. 
Yeah, there's definitely a huge power in the relationships we have with the people around us. And I've seen some research. Obviously, I don't have the extensive background that you do on human behavior. I know a a little bit enough to be dangerous, but (laughs) (laughs) that's about it. But one of the things I know I've read is that point that you make in relation to research around how the people around us and our networks affect us. And that's not necessarily only the people that we are direct contact with, Mm -hmm. but it could be people who are um, twice or three times removed from us actually can impact how we view the world, which is fascinating. Yeah, I totally. I mean, it's it's curating your existence. Who are the humans that you're curating your existence with? Who are whether they are first, second, third, fourth connections or whatever, however you may say it, you know, and how are they imprinting on your life for that? It's really in a constant evaluation of the people that are in your life. It's kind of in the sense that if you look at I would say a good example is kind of these obligatory relationships, such as like family members, right? You're a mother, you're a father, and you have a son, daughter, where in your mind you think, I have to be really into this person because we are related to each other. Like we have to get along because we are have blood relation. That's not true. It's like any relationship. The biology does not determine how well you get along with someone. It's their personality. There could be 10 kids in a family, and there may be like two or three of your kids that you just like, I just don't get along with so-and-so. They're just, we're nothing alike. But you want to think that because you're biologically related that you should somehow magically be in sync constantly and have this great relationship all the time. That's like any relationship. There's some people you have tremendous chemistry with. It's like my podcast. There's some people I get on my podcast with, we have instant chemistry. And there's some people I get on, we don't have much chemistry at all. That's okay. We're just different people. And so it's really an evaluation of who are the people in our lives, looking at it very objectively, whether they're related to them or not. Do we provide positive impacts on each other's personality or do we not type of thing? And I think sometimes it's, very difficult for familiar relationships where people will say, well, we're related, so we have to get along. Like, well, you should try to get along, but the honest approach is that you just may not. You just may be so completely different that you don't end up having that type of relationship. So you're forcing something that is just not going to be there. You can always be cordial to other people and be kind and caring. That doesn't mean you're going to spend all this time with them, though. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting to think about too, is I think people do feel like they have to force themselves to have strong relationships with family members, coworkers, you know, other people, maybe friends of friends and so forth. But I think what's really interesting about that too is just being really honest about the nature of every relationship that you have, finding the value in those relationships. I think that that's always interesting too. I feel like there's always some level of value that you get with communicating with different types of people. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, of course, why I do a podcast is I like to have good conversations with people like you. Yeah. But I always learn something from that. And every one of those relationships is fundamentally different. 
We might have areas in common because maybe we have similar backgrounds, similar perspectives in life. Maybe there's things that we get excited about. But I think there's people I, I get around that they have so much energy. And maybe that kind of goes back to your original point is they put out so much energy. It gives me that energy. It's like it transfers to me. Then all of a sudden I notice it coming out of me too. <laughs> it's some influencing me and my behavior. But yeah, I think that's a super interesting point about finding the value in every relationship that you have and being okay with the fact that not all of those relationships are going to be close. Yeah, I think there's just some relationships are built on distance of behavior or like physicality and geography. Like you just may not do well being around each other, but you may do very well being living far away from each other. And sometimes that may be the case in your own family. You may be a mother-daughter and, you know, I think there's this kind of fairy tale existence with mothers and daughters. And sometimes like you should call each other on the phone every day when they get older and have this really tight relationship. The reality is that's not true for a lot of mother and daughters. That's a made up fallacy for a lot of people. And if you're listening, you may that may be you. You may have that. But you can't believe that all mother daughters have that. There are some mother daughters who need to live on opposite sides of the country because they would be in their face cats and dogs fighting every day if they live next door to each other and you're biologically related it's okay if you don't have that some there's there's tears to relationships i'm sure you experience this there are people you have good friends maybe that you're just really tight with like you just you speak to them all the time and then you have another level of friendship where you kind of speak to this person quarterly and then maybe somebody you just connect with once every couple of years you just kind of pick up you you have a good phone call or whatever, but it's not like you're spending all this time with this person. That's fine. It's not, there's not the same relationship with every single person. And I think we push ourselves into these obligatory relationships or forced relationships because we think we have to, or other people guilt us into, well, this is so-and-so you need to be around this person. This is so-and-so that person doesn't understand human behavior very well. They've been taught this obligatory relationship that you have to fit a square peg into a hole all the time. And it's okay if it's not. Again, you should still be kind and caring and comforting and loving. It just might be a different version of that with that person. You know? Yeah. I think that's going to be a good for a lot of people to reevaluate the relationships they have in their lives and be okay with what they look like. I can, I can say, like you talked about the mother and daughter dynamic. I'm going to say this. I love my mother so much. I love her dearly. Mm -hmm. I have a sister. My relationship with my mother is very different than my sister's relationship with our mother. <laughs> I talk to my mom maybe once or twice a week. And it's not because I don't love her because I love, like I said, I love her dearly. So mom, if you're listening, I love you so much. And I always will. <laughs> But but she knows this as well as as well as I do, and as well as my sister does. My sister calls her a lot. Like they talk every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, it's just a different type of relationship. Yes, it doesn't upset me that they talk more often because it's just I'm a different person than my sister. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that you you have a less loving relationship with your mom. For that, it's just different. I think we just got to be okay with the differences in these relationships. It's kind of like parents go, well, "I love, you know, I love all my kids equally." I'm, I'm, you, I'm sure you do, but certainly there's varying levels of communication, and maybe some level of bias within that relationship as well. And 
like parents, they hate to say that, but it, it's just true. I mean, it's like the behavior tells on you how you interact and how you treat that person and the level of some people have more need. Maybe your sister needs to have daily communication with your mother um, for her to feel safe and, and more cared about. Maybe your mom knows with you, you don't need it that much, need it as much. It doesn't make like one person worse or the other with that. It's just, we need to be, we need to understand that. I think for parents, it's very difficult to understand that. It's, uh, it's kind of like I was having a discussion with someone about like, why is it um, so difficult for parents to see their adult children as experts in various fields and treat them that way? It's often like the parent will try to get information about the field that you're in from somebody else, but not you. And they can't get over the hump of seeing you as a fully realized individual in, let's say, your field of study. They can't bring themselves to sometimes think that you know more than they do about this subject, and you could take that. I think it's a real hurdle for parents, but I think it's a real hurdle for anybody who doesn't accept somebody close to them as being an expert or very knowledgeable in something. They go to another source to retrieve that information, which can be very hurtful to the person you're close to that you don't trust them or you don't feel like they can be your guide because you're so used to being the guider that you'd have a hard time being the person being guided by somebody that you raised, you know? Absolutely. So Darian, tell me something that makes you optimistic about the future. I think what makes me optimistic about the future is the opportunity we have to connect with each other. And that while I think there's a lot of maybe safeguards we need and regulations we need with technology as we continue to increase it, and it increases at an exponential rate, I think it has the ability to connect us in ways that we've never seen before. And I think the best of that is coming. I just think we need to be careful. We have the power of technology in our hands now. You know, I was telling somebody yesterday that, you know, we essentially have a digital prosthesis with our smartphone at this point. And it's a very powerful weapon and it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And I think it's how we wield it is going to determine how well is perceived in the future. But I'm optimistic that as we continue to learn how to use the technology that we have, hopefully it'll be used for good things. Yeah, I think it is definitely important for us to think about the positive results of technology beyond just anything that could be potentially bad or detrimental, and maybe just the whole mix of it all. But thinking about the importance of our experience or how it bolsters our human experience is one way that we keep it on that positive trajectory, bolstering our connections, bolstering our ability to communicate with one another effectively, regardless of our circumstances, I think is a really, really powerful thought. I agree. Thank you. And so on the flip side of that, is there anything that makes you concerned about the future? Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think people concern me on the same end. While I'm optimistic about people, I'm also concerned about people, about us as humans. I feel like, you know, somebody says, you know, what's humanity going to be like in a thousand years? And some parts of me thinks, will people be around then? I mean, we're very self-destructive in many ways. And I think a lot of our downfall is self-inflicted. So I think it's just kind of this difficult aspect. You know, we've been around a really long time. 
but we're also accelerating at a pace that we've never seen before. I mean, there's many times in the past of our human history, there hasn't been much acceleration. Things have kind of stayed the same for a very, very long time, not a lot of progression. But we're in a time of tremendous progression and speed. And sometimes I think that's great. But then other thing, times I think we're speeding so fast towards an unknown future, it's hard to know what to do and to be able to wield something appropriately when it's moving faster than you can create systems for it. That concerns me. And maybe I won't live to see that, probably the fruition of all these things, you know, and there's many lifetimes beyond mine where I'm sure there'll be incredible things happening. But I also worry about why do we create things sometimes without thinking of the consequences of it? I'm very worried about things like deep fakes and uh, kind of as indistinguishable simulation of humans from reality. I think we need to be worried about that. You know, don't worry about fake news. Worry about your likeness and your voice being simulated and being indistinguishable from your real persona and how that can be used against you. How would you know what's real and what's the simulation? If we don't get a handle on that stuff, we're going to be living on a planet where it'll be hard to recognize who's telling the truth, if that person is real or not. That's scary to me. Yeah, that is that is a frightening thought. When you think about the trajectory we've been on and misinformation being passed online and how that bolsters that ability significantly, um, having the ability to take a face of a world leader or a voice of a world leader and manipulate it in a way to make it seem like they're saying something they're not. And I think you bring up a really good point beyond just the fact of misinformation, the fact that it actually starts to disrupt our connection with one another and potentially disrupt our relationship with one another. Because simply we don't know if what we're seeing is something we can trust or not. And that is really an interesting thing to think about. Well, if you can't trust your own senses of what's real and what's not, I think you're in big trouble at that point. Yeah. And since then people can pin things on you or say things. You could plausibly go, I didn't say that. And then they'll go, well, you did. This is your voice. We can match your voice to this voice pattern. This was you. This looks exactly like you. It's indistinguishable from your real self. What's the mechanism? I would like to believe that humans will have something in place that that would be illegal and stuff. But the thing is, we create without regulation all the time. We never think, how will this be horrible for us in the future? We just think, wouldn't this be great? Because we can, we should. And just because you can, it's great, but I think it's better to have some directives before you fully throw something out there and you let, per se, the genie out of the bottle. You can't put it back in once you put something out that's devastating and then you try to create rules. It's much like if you try to start parenting your child at 16 years old for the first time versus doing it when they were really young. That child is not going to listen to you if you just started to parent appropriately at that age. It's the same analogy to me. So it has to start in the beginning. We have to really be conscientious of how these things will affect other humans and try to look around the corner in a predictive model and say, what is the worst case scenario of this technology or of this power that we have? I feel like we're at a point in time where we have a lot of power to create 
but often not a lot of wisdom to understand how to wield it. Right. Well, there's a lot of, it kind of reminds me of the Spider-Man quote, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think as we start to demonstrate and bolster the power that we have in relation to technical capabilities, we need to really consider potential negative impacts that that could have on us, on people, or you know, the misuse of that technology. But also think about how do we center ourselves and being human and who we are and not forgetting, forgetting that, you know, and I'm wondering just based on your experience and your expertise in relation to human behavior, and of course, in relation to physical well-being, how important is it for us to stay centered in that sense of physical and mental well-being as we venture into this interesting and uncertain future? I think one of the most interesting aspects of our life, and maybe it's the biggest open secret in the world is how important physical and mental wellness is. You know, everybody says it's always important to take care of yourself and these things. But I compare it to, as we're moving alongside technology, I feel like well-being and technology are accelerating in this weird parallel pathway where we love technology. We see it's happening. We see the increase in it. And we see more people being awakened to wellness and spirituality and mental well-being, and physical fitness, and nutrition, and all these things with it. And I think we have the tools to be well. I like to say I pay attention to a lot of things, and I love to research things. And, you know, I became interested in, not that I'm endorsing this or anything, but, you know, futurists and life extension folks in those communities, the Ray Kurzweil's, Aubrey de Grey's, and talking about life extension, and trying to get rid of inflammation and basically rehabilitating cells to make them younger so that people can have life extension and live longer. We're trying to extend life through all these other means, but we're skipping over the thing that is completely in front of you, which is having uh, appropriate physical fitness or exercise-based programs, good nutrition practices, sleeping well. We try to skip that so that we can Let's find this nanotechnology or whatever to just insert into our bodies so that will do it for us. In many ways, we're a very lazy species. We want things to be done for us so quickly. We want to skip the work part and to find some great technological innovation so that we can be beautiful and young and vibrant for a long time and not actually do the work which is causing the life extension. We've become a longer living species pretty rapidly, but we're also causing the decline in our life extension as well because of our poor habits and things. So I feel like the physical mental well-being, it's very obvious, but it's also not something people are gravitating to in large droves because the element of work, very hard work, uncomfortableness, physical suffering in the sense of physical activity-based suffering, not life in that sense, is very unattractive to people. So we're looking to technology we're looking to different medicines and things to try to extend our lives. But then it's the question of, do humans need to live indefinitely? Could you actually handle that? I don't think so. I don't think a lot of people could handle living hundreds of years beyond their current lifespan. I think it's, in theory, it sounds good. But in actuality, I think it'd be incredibly difficult for most humans. Yeah, that's, that's a powerful thing to think about. And I've heard a lot of debates over this, and I'm wondering, I'm starting to feel more and more I need to do an episode uh, dedicated to that topic, 
because I think it's really important to think about the evolution of that thought process of people living forever and also the implications of that and what that could mean. And if that's really a good thing in relation to the human experience, is it good to live forever? Um, it's a hard question to answer. I have a lot of thoughts on it. I've actually had this discussion with a lot of people and I think it's a very, it's wishful thinking. I think a lot, your finite capacity to be alive, knowing that you have an end date, not knowing the end date, but knowing you have one, compels you to do things in life and pushes you to be more aggressive in accomplishing things. If it was an infinite life, you'll have two things to do for an entire 24-hour period, and you will make that last the entire 24 hours to get it done, generally speaking. And so where is the motivation to do things? Just because you all have more time. Generally, people put time off. Oh, I have more time. I have more time. There would be some people who would be incredibly diligent with having forever. But I think the majority of the population, not much would happen. And actually, I think it would lead to a tremendous level of mental health issues. I think it'd be a tremendous amount of suicide over time because of living too long, seeing too many things, not knowing what to do. I think it sounds good, but a lot of things sound good. But once you get into it, I mean, I watch a movie and it's a fantastical representation of some reality that is not my reality. And I think, man, it would be great to like jump over a building and fly in the air and, you know, run through stuff and, you know, pick some, you know, run into a building and get somebody out for a fire. I'm like, you don't feel the fire. You don't feel the fear when you're watching the movie. You don't know what it would actually be like to be in those situations. So to say that you would love to be alive forever, how do you know that? You're probably not equipped to handle it. Right. And I can say, Dr. Darren, you have definitely inspired me to do an episode <laughs> dedicated. Do it. Dedicated. Do it. <laughs> to living forever. <laughs> do it. It's so compelling. It's compelling. If, just to see what people think, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an important topic and I'm so glad you brought it up. So now I'm leaving this conversation inspired. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And that's just where I want to be. So I hope the listeners are inspired as well. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. In his work, Dr. Darian applies his extensive knowledge about human behavior to help others take action to affect change in their lives. I believe that this applies not only to fitness and well-being, but to any goals you'd like to achieve in life. Starting with one step that you repeat day after day will help you create a new pattern of behavior. This can help move you from feeling stuck to feeling empowered, opening the door for you to affect change in ways you may never have thought possible. Dr. D demonstrates another behavior that can help us gain a better understanding of the people and world around us. He does research. He follows his curiosity and interest to learn more, and in combination with his experience and perspective, shares those insights with the world. While you may not have a doctorate degree, you have access to a significant amount of data and research within your grasp. Learning is one of the most powerful actions we can take to better understand our world and to ultimately help shape a better world in the future. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Dr. Darian Parker, co-principal at Epic Leisure Management, check out his company's website at elmadventures.com. 
That's elmadventures.com. Also, check out his podcast, Dr. D's Social Network, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.